Hi, and welcome to the Days Gone podcast. I'm Claire Weaver, a screenwriter, author, and Days Gone fan, and this podcast is a place to discuss the game in all its glory, share my opinions, both popular and unpopular, and listen to me fangirl over one of the best games ever made. There will be spoilers ahead, so continue at your own risk. Welcome to The Freak Show. Today, I am delighted to celebrate the third anniversary of the release of Days Gone with a very special interview. Joining me today, direct from Ben Studio, is none other than the lead open world designer, Eric Jensen. Hi, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Claire. This is awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I, I, I do want to thank you genuinely from the bottom of my heart for being here and talking about the game that we all love so very much. There is so much fucking love for this game. No, I, and we've we've felt it over the years. I mean, the fa- the fact that you know three years later people are you know still talking about it, still posting their their you know photos and and playthroughs and asking us questions and stuff like that. It's it it warms your heart to have created something that's resonated with people so much. So we're yeah we're super thankful for all the support that we've gotten. All right. So as the lead open world designer, what elements of Days Gone were you responsible for? Oh man. Uh, a lot all of the above (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean this this was our first open world game so um you know it was all new for the team and we we had to build an open world team specifically for this so um you know myself and five or six other designers were in charge of all of the open world content so um the all of the enemies that you find out in the open world the wildlife like the animals and stuff like that um all of the encampments uh all four five four of the encampments uh that are in the game uh and and all of the life and stuff that went into them um we had the the ambush camps the the nero checkpoints the hordes uh all of the dynamic events like the encounters and stuff that you that you see out in the world um all the encampment jobs all of that was kind of under our umbrella um including all the like collectibles and stuff that you could find um throughout the world so you know it was it was a lot um but we we were super excited to build out um that world and you know create something that people are going to feel connected to and so it was an awesome opportunity for the studio um but also for the designers that that got to work on the open world with me well, you did a fantastic job and with such a small team as well. It was, yeah. I mean, like I said, there was, you know, five or six of us uh, working on the, the open world side of things. And, you know, with that came uh, the the task of, you know, thinking thinking smart with everything that we had to do, you know, because there's, you know, hundreds of hours worth of uh, open world to explore and to interact with and, uh, you know, content to complete and things to find. Uh, we had to we had to design everything in a way that made it so that, you know, we didn't have just five people working on thousands of things. Um, and so that was, you know, that was a fun challenge to be able to create a whole bunch of unique feeling content, but not have to, uh, you know, by hand create every single encounter Mm, mm -hmm. what element of what you worked on are you the most proud of out of all of those things that you had a hand in (laughs) what's the one thing that you're like yeah i did that that's that's a good question you know i the the experience of of just existing in the world and 
you know, being able to look around and, you know, see uh, a herd of deer being chased by freakers or, um, you know, seeing crows circling around the infestation, just mm. the life, the life that is there and, mm-hmm. and kind of the player's ability to kind of just stand there and take it all in and see things happening around them without their interaction uh, being necessary. That I think is, is what I'm most proud of. We were able to, to combine so many different elements uh, of interactivity in the world that brought it to life and the player can sit there and observe it. Maybe not yeah. for too long <laughs> before, <laughs> <Yes>. before getting <laughs> attacked. Um, but there are those, there are those moments where you just, you know, you get up over the ridge and you look out and you see things fighting off in the distance or you see deer drinking at the lake or something like that. That's, that is a magical moment when all of those pieces came together uh, yeah. and we finally started to see the world come to life. That was, that was really cool. And I'm, I'm definitely proud of that. Yeah. I, I mean, that leads perfectly into my next question was, I was going to say that the world of Days Gone is this beautifully dynamic living thing with the animals, the freaks, the marauders, raiders, all wandering around and interacting with each other. How did you go about approaching the design of such a complex and fluid system? Well, we knew from pretty early on that we wanted we wanted pretty much everything in the world to be able to interact with each other. Um, we didn't want to kind of silo things off. So, you know, you may you may have like your your deer habitat over here and your your cougar habitat over here. We didn't want to keep those things separate. We wanted things to be able to interact with each other and look good doing it. Um, and so that would, you know, with that came a lot of, a lot of testing, a lot of, uh, kind of designing around, you know, what does it look like when a bear interacts with humans? What does it look like when Newt interacts with a deer? You know, all of these, all of these combinations, um, and it gets super complex. Um, but we knew that, you know, if we were going to deliver on that feeling of a real living, breathing world that was interactive with not only the player, but with itself, we knew that we had to have all of these different combinations accounted for. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was a huge undertaking for design. It was a huge undertaking for our AI team um, to get all these things interacting with each other. And then huge shout out to the animation team, because that's, that's where that fidelity comes in. You know, mm-hmm. like if you see a human and a bear interacting with each other and the human is just like, you know, standing there shooting at it, but not reacting as what a human would react to if they kind of came across a bear. Um, that's, that's what we, you know, took to the next level. And we made sure that everything was, you know, interacting in a way that made sense and and how you would interact in the world. And so like, you know, when you see a horde uh, coming across a, a camp of humans, they react, you know, they, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll fight it to begin with. And then they're like, Oh crap, we're getting overwhelmed. And then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll retreat, they'll back off, they'll hide behind stuff. We knew that that's, that's what would happen. And so we wanted to make sure that all of those interactions felt natural. And especially for the player that is wanting to observe that life, you know, it, it plays out how they would expect it. You know, as soon as, as soon as it doesn't play out how you would expect it, it breaks that level of immersion. Mm-hmm. And we didn't yeah. want to do that, you know. It, as as few times as you can take the player out of the experience, the better, you know. And that was that was kind of our goal: is to once you got immersed in it, we didn't we wanted you to stay immersed in it. Uh, and so every step of the way, we made sure that all of that stuff just worked how you would expect it to work. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, you guys did a fantastic job. That is, I think, one of the best things about Days Gone. There are lots of lots of things that are like high up on the list. This is my favorite game of all time. It's a lot of people's favorite games of all time. The way the world makes sense. And I always describe it as feeling real, even though, sure, we don't have yeah. rager bears in the real world and we don't have <laughs> ambush camps and things like that. But it feels real. It feels like what you were just describing, how what would happen if a horde went into a camp? that would happen. You get to see yeah. it. You get to see it play out. What would happen if somebody gets eaten by a rager bear? You get to see it play out. It's so cool what you guys did. It, it feels so realistic and it, it feels vibrant and alive around you. And I think it's something that people don't necessarily realize on their first playthrough mm -hmm. because you're playing a game, you know, you have a guy with a gun and you run around, you shoot things, boom, that's what you do. That's right. what the game tells you to do. And then you start to realize, wait, that this world is alive around you. You can manipulate it to get what you want out of the game. You can take exactly. a horde into an ambush camp and get the horde to take out the ambush camps. You don't have to yep. shoot them. You can lead the horde there or a wolf or a bear yep. or whatever. It's so it's, it's, it's such a good it's, job. You, you it's one did. of the it's it's kind of one of the riskiest things to try to pull off too, because you know, it's it's that emergent gameplay. You know, we give you the tools, we give you the the scenarios and stuff like that. You can play them out however you want you can combine things you can use use a horde use traps use whatever use your bike to to lure things um we have to be able to predict at least most of those things that the player might try so that we know that it's going to work the way that they expected that, that it's going to look good um you know and so emergent gameplay the hope is that you just give the player the tools and they figure things out um but you have to as a designer, you have to account for so many of those things to make sure that they do what the player would expect, you know? Mm, so mm -hmm. when I when I bring a horde and I have a horde chasing me and I'm like, oh crap, I have to get back to the Lost Lake camp and I, you know, I want to get in the gate. Well, the gate's not going to open because mm -hmm. they don't want to, they don't want to bring the horde in there. So right. they, they lock down the gate and the guards that are at the, at the posts start shooting at the horde, you know, that mm -hmm. didn't happen until we realized this could happen. And then we had to account for it and we had to, you know, set it up so that the camp, which is normally, you know, a safe space can fight back, you know, right. uh, and you'll, you'll see the same thing. Sometimes you'll roll up to the camp and there's marauders at the gate mm -hmm. and they're, they're trying to break into the camp and, you know, you can sit there and observe it and the camp will eventually take care of them or you can help out and then, you know, they'll open the gate for you. Um, it's it's those things that especially with our QA team, we found all of these scenarios that could potentially happen, all of these combinations of things and that emergent feeling, you know, but we have to account for most of it. Uh, right. and then and then hope that, you know, all of the things, the combinations of things that the player comes up with uh, play out as they would expect. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite things to do is looking at the landscape around a horde cave or an ambush camp and look for interesting features that have been put there to help mm. defeat the enemy. Uh, for example, the Belknap Caves ambush camp is littered with bear traps and right. it has the horde hiding in the cave down below. And I'd always had trouble bringing the horde up into the camp. They lose interest after a little while mm. and wander back down. But I found a way to use a single bear trap to catch a marauder in a, a specific spot mm -hmm. that will draw the horde up. And it's the right combination of being in the right place and the other marauders being in the right spot. So when the horde comes up, it draws them through the camp and they can take out the entire camp with one bear trap. Yep. 
how much fun was it for you <laughs> to come up with things like that? And what are some of your favorites? So that, that's that's one of my favorite ambush camps. Um, uh, Phil Wilson, one of our open world designers, that was uh, he he was in charge of all the ambush camps, and that was the one that I worked with him the most closely on, probably because every time that I would do a run through uh, and and see how things were feeling. I would always get caught in that bear trap. <laughs> and so and so I was the I was the one that would trigger the horde rather than rather than getting one of the marauders to to go mm -hmm. in there and, and and get in the bear trap and trigger the horde. I was the one that always fell into that bear trap because I wasn't paying attention. And so the same that, bear trap every time or a different one every oh, time? No, it was the same bear trap every single time. And no the matter one near how, the hatch by any chance? Yes. Yes. And so no <laughs> no matter how familiar I was with the area, every single time I would end up falling into that bear trap. And so in the game, that bear trap is called Eric's bear trap. Oh, that's awesome. That is <laughs> behind, awesome. Behind, behind the scenes because I would always fall into it. Um, and so Phil renamed that bear trap, Eric's bear trap, um, just just to commemorate all of the times that I died there or or that I triggered the horde uh, <laughs> and, and sabotaged my playthrough. Um, but that kind of stuff is is super awesome. And that kind of goes to what I was talking about, about that emergent gameplay. Mm -hmm. you, you found, you know, we didn't tell you to use the horde. It was just there, you know, and mm -hmm. you found a way to use that to your benefit. And and that's, you know, that's not a, a super easy ambush camp because you've got snipers, you've got this kind of center island area that mm. you have to kind of work around. And then it's got the double layers to it. Um, and it's hard to kind of sneak into that area and without, you know, getting noticed and stuff. Especially on account of the bear trap that you always Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially for me, because I would just, you know, I would always jump into that and start screaming. So, um, but it, it's cool that that was, we had so many tools for the player to play with and then tools for the designer mm -hmm. to, to play with, to craft these scenarios and come up with a way that, you know, allows the player to engage however they want. But we kind of hint at them certain ways that they might be able to use the environment or use enemies around them or use the tools that were set up to stop them, you know, and you mm -hmm. can use them against the the enemies. So all of the ambush camps were a blast, but that one was a lot of fun because of that horde that was down there. Yeah. Um, and, and it always, you know, the first time you drive in there and you're cruising around, you either end up alerting the ambush camp or end up alerting the horde and you're like, okay, oh, crap. I'm, I'm just, yeah, or both. <laughs> and then you're just like, all right, I'm going to bail. And, yeah, and bye. <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll come back later. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll see you on Wednesday and uh, we'll, we'll try this again. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's fun, you know, to, to kind of play those things out. And like, you know, it's, it's one piece of content. It's one event in the game and you can play it out dozens of different ways uh mm -hmm. depending on your your play style and your your bike level and what weapons you have and whether it's night or day you know whether it's raining you know all of those things play into it uh and it's it's really cool that the outcome can be so different yeah i want to talk for a minute about some of the detail in the game less so about the gameplay more about kind of the aesthetic and the the yeah. vibe of the world and how the world feels so lived in so mm -hmm. kind of weathered and worn what went into getting that vibe it was it was cool because like because oregon is our backyard like we see all of this stuff firsthand and so in the winter we'll have 
avalanches that'll happen up on the pass and they'll take out a road or you have a big storm or something and trees will collapse onto the road power lines will go down and like all of this stuff that you you take it you take for granted how much effort goes into keeping everything in order you know there's this Mm -hmm. you know maybe not as much order in the world as we want sometimes but there is some order to to things and things are taken care of you know i i don't ever think about oh i hope there's nothing in the road when i when i drive downtown or or go to work or something um but that's that's what happens very quickly if if the world is not maintained and so that was kind of the first layer of of the environment is well what would happen if two years of the Oregon Department of Transportation not existing, you know, and the trees that collapse on the ground, the bridges that, you know, are crumbling and the roads that get washed out. Um, all that stuff happens on a regular basis here, but we have people to take care of it. Mm. And so over that that first two years, let's just pretend like Department of Transportation doesn't exist and what would happen to the environment, you know, and then it kind of layers on top of that. So uh, because the roads got washed out or destroyed or whatever, people had to abandon their cars and they had to go on foot because there was no way to actually traverse the environment. So you've got all these abandoned cars all over the place. And then, you know, buildings get abandoned because the freakers are taking them over and they're building nests in them and, and, you know, nothing is safe, you know? And so you've got all these places that are either burnt out or, uh, you know, infested with freakers. And we just, we really wanted to tell that story of over these two years, this is all of the stuff that happened. And you don't necessarily get to see that in progress, but we wanted to make sure that, you know, within any frame of the world, when you're standing there, if humans had been there before, this is what has happened since then because of their, you know, either their lack of presence or the presence of the freakers and and what they've done to the environment and so you know you see that pretty early on in the at the beginning of the game with uh the bridge being out at that opening chase mm. sequence with leon the bridge is knocked out and so you have to go off the road and you know jumping over little bridges and stuff and then you eventually make your way back on the road but then you've got a pile up of cars you've got a semi truck that's turned over you've got all these things and and that's that's exactly what would happen if if things just kind of stopped ticking, you know, mm, the mm. world kind of stopped in that moment when the freakers uh, ran rampant and they kind of took over and the human presence was just not there in the same way. And you can kind of feel that in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I especially love the tunnels. We're talking specifically about the roads being blocked, the tunnels, yeah. the, the atmosphere in the tunnels, the sound design, the way the sound changes. There's like an ambient noise to the tunnels, the lighting, obviously, the yeah. way there always seem to be more cars in the tunnel than when you're yep. outside of the tunnel. And and some of the little turns that you have to make are often quite awkward. I'm not very good at driving the bike. I always oversteer. <laughs> so I'm always crashing into things anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, the tunnels, I'm like, oh, man, I hate going through the tunnels, but I love it because I love yeah. horror. I love this kind of thing. So it's that sort of love. I love to hate it or I hate to love it. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a love-hate relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, tunnels, the tunnels were really cool because you know, when you think about game design, like you go way back, it's not as much of an issue now, but 
you know, things like that, like corridors or doorways or whatever, were always there and used to load into a new area or or to slow the player down because, you know, assets on the other side needed to load in or uh, you were going to be going from one map to another. So there was a little bit of that thinking in the beginning of, okay, well, we need these tunnels here to separate one region from the other. Um, or we need some sort of, you know, a, a corridor. Um, there's like a little bit of a valley going from Cascade down to Lost Lake that kind of serves the same purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we wanted we wanted the feel of the gameplay in that tunnel to be different. It's it's more claustrophobic. Yeah. You have to slow down on the bike. You're going to get knocked off. You don't know what's around the corner. As you said, the lighting the lighting is different, you know. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's some element of surprise and fear. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the marauders that sometimes lay a trap yep, for you there. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's that's just it. Like that's that's a good example um, of you know that you have to go through this area, and if if even just one time marauders show up and attack you then that's going to be in the back of your head every single time you go through a tunnel, you know, or if you're going to the gas station to try to find gas and fill up your gas and there's people there waiting for you to attack you and to try to steal your bike or, or kill you and take your stuff. It doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't even happen often, but it just happened. It needs to have just happened once for you to then question every single time after that, is this safe for me to do? Right. And and that was that was kind of one of the purposes of the tunnels is like we know that they're going to have to do this. We know that you're going to have to fill up your bike. We know that you're going to have to go through the tunnels to get to the other areas. So let's just make you uneasy about it mm. <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. It's the same with the question mark little missions. The little you know mm-hmm. you hear something across the map and you go and investigate. Every now and again, that'll be a trap. Yep. Just every so once in a while. So, of course, every time you're following the little map markers, following the little footsteps or whatever, I always have to pay attention to what am I following? Because sometimes exactly. it's clothes or like gas can or something. There's something that I'm like, wait, this isn't a signifier <laughs> of someone's in trouble, someone got killed and I can go loot their body. Right. Or someone needs rescuing. This is This is a trap. This is a trail that I'm following that is going yeah. to have a little, what do you call it, like a snare at the yeah. end. And I'm going to be upside down, hanging out free. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was one of my favorite uh, events that we put in the game. The, the snare trap that, you know, you get knocked out. You have no idea where you wake up. You're in a cage. They took all your stuff. Very disorienting and panic-inducing almost. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's not, it kind of goes against um, a lot of, you know, traditional design principles to, to do that kind of thing to the player. It, Cause it, it, you're, you're immediately taking control away from them. We're throwing you into a situation where you don't know what's going on. We've taken away all of your stuff. It kind of breaks some rules and kind of goes against what you should be doing. Um, but it, it fits with the world and it, and it was, it was something that we had to do in order to continue making the player feel like, don't get comfortable, you know, and, and like with those question marks, you know, we, we wanted to just kind of pop them up on the, on the map for just a second. So it was kind of like, you know, that moment when you're like hiking or something and you hear a a stick break and you look around and you're like, what was that? And you have that choice in your head of, 
okay, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear it and I'm going to keep going, but I'm, I'm going to maybe walk a little bit faster because I don't know what that was. <laughs> or, or I'm going to go look and see what that stick breaking was because maybe it's an opportunity, you know? Mm. In, in, in normal everyday life, you're going to think, oh crap, it's a bear or somebody's following me and I'm going to get out of there. But when you're in this desperate world where you're trying to survive, it's an, it could be an opportunity. Yeah. I, I need gas. I need ammo. I need bandages. And if there's something over there, you know, yes, there's a risk, you know, because I, it could be a trap or it's a, a deer that just stepped on something and I'm going to be able to go get meat for the camp or something. Um, but in that moment, we, we want the player to assess the situation and process what, you know, is the risk worth the reward mm. and you never know. Uh, and, and there's, there's something kind of exciting about that of, you know, always having something around you that could potentially kill you or give you some benefit, you know, for yourself or, you know, to bring back to the camp. I want to ask about the apparent prankster in Marion Fawkes. So there's a pipe bomb <laughs> or rather a cherry bomb in the toilet of the hotel at Marion Fawkes. <laughs> and there's an airbag or perhaps a whoopee cushion under a seat in the diner were you responsible for putting those there uh i i was not directly responsible but <laughs> one of the things you know as as we got closer to to completing the game uh one of the things that we wanted to do was kind of litter the world with storytelling moments you know there's in i, th I think it's down in crater lake I think it's in Crater Lake by one of the ambush camps. I think the southernmost. There, there's there's a scene that looks like people are playing beer pong. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's scenes where there's like teddy bears, you know, lined up along the side of the river or something like that. We wanted to we wanted to have these little moments where people are going to be going crazy. People are going to be trying to entertain themselves and prevent themselves from going crazy. Um, you know, when you're, when you're desperate and you're trying to survive, you, you kind of think irrationally or, or kind of playfully in a sense. Um, and so, you know, I, I had a couple of the open world designers kind of just go around and walk the environment and look at opportunities for doing something silly, doing something out of place. Um, something that is, you're going to think, what was going on here? You know, <laughs> and then, and then you write the story yourself, you mm -hmm. know, you see this thing and you're like, huh, I wonder what they were doing. And sometimes we thought it through and, and we made up a story ourselves. Other times we just, you know, threw a pipe bomb in a toilet and hope that somebody walks up to it and was like, what, what's the story here? What, <laughs> what led to this, to this event? And I guess I'll just take this pipe bomb because I need it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's lots of, there's lots of little, uh, moments in the environment that are like that, that, uh, it, it goes back to what you were saying about the world feeling lived in. And it's, it's not something that you would expect, but at the same time, it makes you feel like, yeah, there, there were people here doing things since all of this went down. Um, and this is the evidence of that. It goes back to what you were saying about the, uh, the world feeling real and, yeah. It's not just you put in a bunch of broken roads and and you know cars and block tunnels and things like that. It's like no there were there are real animals wandering around that really interact with each other. There are mm -hmm. real hordes and marauders interacting with each other and there were real people who really did 
play beer pong or leave a pipe bomb <laughs> in the toilet or whatever. Like they exactly. had a real reaction, like you say, to the world that they're in. They needed an element of humor or they needed to blow off some steam. Not every yeah. second of every day in this environment is going to be spent, you know, sitting in a bush with a gun or something feeling like you're going to die. There might have been yeah. times when they they wanted to cut loose and play a bit of beer pong and then probably got, you know, rushed by a horde and died. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. Yeah. But in that moment there was there was some semblance of normalcy, mm-hmm. you know. And and I think that that's what everybody in this in the world of days gone was trying to find. It was just a little fragment of I feel okay in this moment. I feel normal. And we wanted you to be able to see that in the world. Right. Those moments where it was quiet for a minute. Let's just sit and sit by the lake and hang out with our, you know, stuffed animals that we found on the side of the road. And maybe that's all that they had to talk to, you know? Yeah. Is it true that all the car license plates in the game are initials of people who worked on it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I want to say that there's maybe like a dozen um, variations of it, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, designers and, and artists and, and animators and stuff like that it was their uh initials and then it was some combination of their their birthday uh for oh. the numbers on the end oh cool so uh, that's awesome all right so i want to talk about one of the biggest elements of the game obviously the hordes mm-hmm. they feel a lot of the times like they have their own personalities like the iron butte horde will follow you over great distances you can pretty much right. lead them anywhere um, whereas others seem to lose interest pretty quickly, like the Lobot Drawridge Horde doesn't really, it's super lazy, doesn't really want to follow you right. even to the other side of the little area that they're in. Can you talk about designing and developing the personalities of the Hordes and why it's important to have that variety? When we were planning on putting the Hordes out there, we knew that we wanted to have like um, different sizes and you know, kind of locations where they would feed or, you know, go down and drink water or hibernate. Um, and kind of depending on the environment, that meant that some of them would be able to have to, you know, have to go over greater distances or, you know, some of them would eat and drink kind of in the same spot or, um, you know, just having a little bit of variety to it. And so, you know, there wasn't going to be one situation that suited all because the environment was just so different all over the place. Um, and so we tried to, we tried to have some level of progression to it, you know, so like up in the upper regions, there's, you know, smaller hordes. And as you, you know, move further down the map, they get bigger and, and more menacing and stuff like that. Um, but the, the balance of, um, kind of their territory and the size creates very different scenarios. And we found that like, like we didn't change the behavior of the horde depending on the size or depending on the location. It was the same behavior, but when you have 20 freakers in a horde compared to 200, their behavior was different. Even though it was the same, it felt very different. Um, and, and so it just, it was kind of a happy accident of, you know, as we changed the sizes of these things and we changed their, their range of um, interest in continuing to chase you, the experiences were very different. Um, and especially if you layer in the environment changes, mm. some, it makes more sense to stay on your bike. Some it makes more sense to stay on your, on your feet and get the high ground and, and, and try to attack them that way. Um, but every, every individual horde 
plays out and feels different than the previous one. And the behaviors are identical. It's just the way that, you know, the number of freakers or the environment that they're in or how far away they get from, you know, their, their nesting area or their, their feeding area creates these completely different scenarios. And it just kind of, it just kind of happened when we started playing with those, those variables. And it, like I said, it's, it's one of those happy accidents. Um, but we, we, we found that like really anywhere that we put the horde creates a, a really cool, unique, uh, gameplay experience. And so that's, that's just one of the awesome things about the horde is, is how versatile it was and, and how, um, varying the, the experience can be depending on where you are. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned in your interview with Kevin McAllister on the Broken Road blog that you built a lot of dynamic systems that would adapt to the state of Deacon or how the player was playing mm -hmm. the game so that no two experiences would be exactly the same. Can you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the simplest um, form of that was just night and day. So, you know, we had the Freakers behave differently during the night and day you don't see them out during the day as often as you do at night um and so for everything for human interaction for animals that was kind of the base level of this changes their behavior you know you're going to see humans out during the day a lot more because the freakers aren't um animals depending on which animal it was you would see some of them out during the day some of them out at night um and and their behaviors would be a little bit differently they're their senses would change, you know, how aware they were of certain things would be different based on if it was night or day. Um, and then the weather is another layer to that. Mm. Uh, so during the day, if it was cloudy and raining, you might get some of that nighttime influence. Um, so you might see more freakers out during the day if it's cloudy and overcast and raining. Um, and so a lot of that stuff played into uh you know a lot of the tuning and stuff that we did but then the players health the players um bike health and stuff like that we would check into that all the time so if the player was you know low on health or low on ammo you would potentially be more likely to come across those little question marks and if you chased after them you might find locations where you could find extra gas or a med kit or some ammunition um oh, interesting but on, only only if all of those variables kind of lined up you know mm. and so we would we would keep track of that stuff and so the player state the motorcycle state the world all of those things influenced what kind of scenarios you could get yourself into that's fascinating uh speaking of scenarios i read that you wanted to put in a freaker sasquatch which would have been absolutely <laughs> awesome. Are you disappointed that Bigfoot didn't make it into the final game? Or wait, did Bigfoot make it into the final or, game? Or, or, yeah, or, or did it? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was something that uh, our, our lead character artist, uh, Greg Callahan, uh, and I had joked about for years because um, he was a, a big uh, Bigfoot fan. And Oregon, Oregon has all sorts of like uh, lore and, uh, you know, old wives' tales and stuff about sasquatch or, or bigfoot uh being in this area and there's been sightings and stuff like that so we just thought it would be one of those fun little easter eggs to kind of have something in the background um mm -hmm. but no we we ended up not doing it um you know it it's again it's one of those things that you know if you saw it 
it would kind of take you out of the the element that we were creating. Yeah, and there was there was a lot of stuff that we explored early on in the development that could have been cool, um, but tonally it would have taken you out of the experience. Um, and and so you know, we we took the ideas that we had for those things and implemented the the fun aspects of it into other things. Um, but there were things that we we got rid of because you know just we didn't want to take you out of the experience and break the tone um, mm. that we were trying to go for because you know there's it's okay to have those kind of goofy moments every once in a while you know like the pipe bomb in the toilet or the the beer pong on the hill right next to an ambush camp um, but but those those make sense in the world uh, and there were certain things that we just you know, we, we pulled back on or we just ended up not pursuing at all um, just to maintain that that level of, you know, relatability with the world and the, and the realism of, of the story that we were trying to tell. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Is there a story behind the Lopez family graffiti? That's one of my favorite things to find in the game. There's usually graffiti that says Lopez family was here. Is there a story behind that? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, there was a lot of stuff like that. There was like certain graves um, that had different names on them. There were little stories in some of the bunkers um, that you'd see like uh, little tick marks and stuff on the wall or something like that. Um, that was honestly, it was just, it was our artists feeling inspired to just kind of, you know, either, either it was, you know, an, a, a family name or, or something that they just made up. But um, it's, it's, those are the things that like give it a little bit more personality and you're like, huh, I wonder what that was. And we, like I said, we didn't always have, you know, a backstory behind all of those things. But every time that you see something like that, you're thinking, huh, I wonder if, I wonder if this means something. I wonder if there's something more to this and you can kind of create your own story out of it. Um, you know, there, there is the, the scene later on in the game when you're at the, at the university, uh, there's a, there's a scene with Deacon and Sarah where they go into one of the classrooms and they see a whole bunch of people that had made peace with with the situation and and kind of you know decided that it wasn't worth living for uh and there's a big whiteboard in there that has a whole bunch of names of all of the people that decided to to call it quits and that's the whole studio that's all of us we we went into one of the offices and wrote our names on the whiteboard and took pictures of them and put them all on the whiteboard uh and that's that's the whole team <laughs> that it that put their names on that on that that's whiteboard so in there cool. so some <laughs> some things have a, a a bigger connection um but others we wanted to just kind of you know let players fill in the gaps themselves mm -hmm. and kind of create their own story out of it cuz that's what deacon would have done you know right there's there's no you know there's no way for him to know who the Lopez family was or who was down in the bunker, you know, marking off the, the days of, of, you know, time that we're passing to try to keep track of what was going on. But, um, you know, in, in any situation like that, you're going to start coming up with your own kind of stories to kind of fill in the world and, and make sense of it as best as you can. Yeah. Were you involved in creating any of the challenges? Yeah. So I, I, I didn't, I didn't make any of the challenges directly. I, I worked with the team on, on the challenge mode. Um, I had a challenge that I was working on that ended up, uh, not making the cut, um, which, you know, it, it could have been pretty cool, but, um, the challenges were awesome. It was, it was one of the times where we got to kind of break that, uh, kind of tone, you know, mm -hmm. and, and do something completely different. And that's, that's why it was, 
you know kind of separate from the the main game because we didn't want it to to pull from the tone of of the story or anything like that um but it gave us you know a little bit of a chance to to have some fun with it and and to try things that we wouldn't have been able to try in the main game uh and just kind of goof around with ideas and we were able to to have a lot of fun as a design team working on the challenges yeah what was the challenge idea you had that didn't make the cut <laughs> so uh there's there's the golf cart obviously we did our uh uh arcade taxi inspired um <laughs> uh challenge with the golf cart um but so i i was actually involved early on in making the golf cart work um behind the scenes it's just deacon's motorcycle and i just added another set of wheels to it and then re we had it one of the artists worked with me on reskinning it to to be the golf cart and so that when it's uncapped, you can drive the golf cart just as fast as the motorcycle and it's got nitrous and, and all sorts of stuff, just <laughs> like the bike does. Um, so I, I had worked on that early on. And so I knew that if I was going to make a challenge, I wanted to do something with the golf cart. And so I had put together this super post-apocalyptic looking golf cart with, it had solar panels on the top. It was electrified and uh, did all this cool stuff. And the idea was um, you had to make it across the map uh, before the sun went down because otherwise you would end up losing power. And so it's, there's a, there's a game called, um, I think the game's called chase the sun or race the sun or something like that. Um, and you basically just, you have the sun on the horizon and as the sun's going down, you start losing energy. Uh, and so the idea was you had to get the golf cart from one end of the map to the other as fast as you could chasing the sun. So the sun mm. is setting uh, on the other side of the map and you'd have to get there as soon as possible once the sun went down then you had only a certain amount of time that your your battery would last uh in order to get you all the way to the finish line so <laughs> it was it was fun uh and it was cool to to play around with it but because it took like going across the entirety of the map um there were some issues that i ran into with the um the challenge itself and so i ended up sunsetting it no pun intended <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, how much of a role did the challenges play in creating the landscape of the game? Were the challenge levels built around what had already been designed, or was some of the world designed with challenge mode in mind? So the challenges were layered on top of what was already there, which which actually made them a little more challenging um, because we had to we had to take what was there and we didn't want to affect the main game. Um, so we kind of just layered on top of uh, the the main map what these experiences could be, and uh, it was it was really cool um, thinking about it that way, knowing that you know we can't change anything. We can layer stuff on top of it, but we can't change anything because it's going to affect the main game, and we don't want to have to you know mess with stuff on that side of things, and mm -hmm. you know potentially break the the tuning and and the flow to things on that side. Um, so it was it was a cool experience for the designers because you know, we got to explore the world and, and think, okay, well, where would a cool place to have this like, you know, arcade experience be? And so we got to to spec out stuff. And especially for like the bike race ones, we we kind of just raced around the world and found really cool paths that would, that would make, you know, for a cool circuit or a, a race or something like that. And so it was fun working with, you know, we worked with the environment team and, uh, you know, they helped us kind of layer in, you know, obstacles and stuff that we could you know put on put in place and stuff like that but 
it was cool because we we didn't change the world and so if you do any of those challenges you can go to those exact locations in the main game and you know aside from like the flags or the you know the the finish lines and stuff like that Mm -hmm. yeah the ramps um everything else is identical to the main game yeah that's cool uh which is your favorite challenge and do you have gold in all of them i i do have gold in all of them i have so i i have the i have the platinum uh and then i have 100 percent on all of the uh the expanded uh trophy stuff um and yeah, getting gold, that, that was a challenge, um, <laughs> but it was fun. Um, I, I want to say my favorite is the uh, the taxi arcade inspired game. Um, that that one's really cool. I'm a big fan of, of Crazy Taxi. And so to be inspired, you know, by that and to have been able to execute on something like that within another game was kind of cool. Um, we, we basically recreated that game in our game. Um, and then it was cool because, you know, one of the things that makes that game so special is the music. And we got to feature some of our own talent. So we have people within the studio that are musicians or are part of bands or whatever. And that's all the music that was featured in in that challenge was people that, you know, are within the studio or have ties to the studio. And so we were able to showcase some of their music in that, which was really cool. Oh, that's cool. How many times have you personally played Days Gone and what's your favorite character or thing about the game from a player's point of view? Okay. Um, man, it's hard to gauge how many times I've played it <laughs> because it, at least in, in, in production, like it, it was never like a, a start to finish playthrough. Um, it was kind of all, you know, piecemeal here and there. Um, when, when we were done, uh, right before launch, um, I got my um, pre-release code when all the like journalists and, and media and stuff was playing the game. Um, and my goal was to get the Platinum before midnight when the game launched. And I was able to do that. And so that was that was cool because I being able to say that I 100% of the game right before it came out, right before the public was able to play it, was, that was really cool. Um, but that was actually the first time that I had played it nonstop start to finish i'd seen all of the cinematics there were there were some cinematics in the game that i purposefully did not watch because i didn't want to be spoiled uh as to the experience and so when i got to play it for my for my platinum run that was my first time playing the game all the way through as it was intended um and and it was it was cool there was there was stuff that i had played before but i didn't have the context of it Mm-hmm. as as it fit within the story and stuff and so it was a completely different experience so um you know since then i've probably played it i want to say four or five times obviously I, you know playing the the um additional difficulties that we added and then doing new game plus and stuff um i've probably played it four or five times uh since launch but man i've probably got thousands of hours into that game <laughs> yeah no i'm sure uh, favorite character. My favorite character is probably uh, Wade Taylor, ah. the the guy that Deacon ran into when he first started joining the uh, the militia down south. Mm-hmm. That... Deacon St. John, son of a preacher man. <laughs> son of a preacher man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, like, man, that's a hell of a name. <laughs> <laughs> and it is. That was, it that is. was one of the moments where I really started to enjoy the 
I really started to appreciate the work that had gone into the game because I, I play games. I'm a storyteller. I love worlds and stories and immersing myself in the game and pretending like it's not a game, you know, just right. suspending my disbelief. I know some people like to play video games from more of a gamer point of view, where they're like gaming the game, understanding the mechanics, understanding the ways that they can win or beat the system, mm -hmm. use it to their advantage. I, I just kind of go with the flow. But I had been sort of, you know, thinking about the story and thinking about the one thing that kept taking me out was Deacon St. John being such a <laughs> kind of a protagonist name. It's a little overkill. No, I love the game. I'm not dissing it. No shade. <laughs> no. But it's a little bit of a protagonist -y name. So when Wade comes in and is like, Deacon St. John, what a name. I'm like, and he makes yes! And he makes fun of it a little bit. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> damn, the people who made this game, they know it's a little bit of a silly name and they're having fun with it. They're poking yeah. fun at it. And that was just... So fucking awesome. I loved that moment. I actually interviewed Jamie McCune, who played Wade. Oh, uh, he's such a cool guy. He is, he's, yeah. He's so cool. And the the character that he brought to Wade Taylor, you know, uh, spoilers, but Wade doesn't make it. Um, mm -hmm. And man, that was... So this to answer both of your questions, Wade Taylor is one of my favorite kind of tertiary characters. And that moment where he dies... Mm. is probably one of the like top two of like the most heartbreaking emotional moments in the game um you know the the other one being when um deacon you know uh, puts down that that girl that had been you know tied up and, and tortured by the rippers mm. the, they mm -hmm. were just they were just really powerful moments and it just makes you think like man what would i do in that situation i like i I don't know. I have no idea. You know, yeah. I would hope that I would do the right thing, you know, but that, that moment with the death of, of Wade and, and, and that, that overdose, um, it, it was rough. Um, but that was, man, the, the, the performance that, um, James gave for that, uh, was, was brilliant. And, and, the, you know, even, even through all of his, you know, tortured, uh, existence in the game, he was humorous. You know, he brought mm -hmm. he brought some some charm to it and some character and innocence almost. So a little bit of yeah. the, uh, what yeah. we've lost, what all these characters have lost. The world has lost its innocence, and then his Wade, yeah, he's yeah. slightly <laughs> yeah. childlike. Yeah, it, it was a special character, and yeah, I, I absolutely love that. It's funny you say about um, the two mercy kills that Deacon does with Wade and with mm -hmm. that, that woman that uh, has her legs broken. Yeah. There's a moment when Deacon and Boozer find the dogs that the Rippers have been killing. Mm. And yeah. Boozer, being the, the more of the dog lover of the two of them, is like, oh, shit, they find one that's injured but isn't dead. And he asks Deacon to mercy kill the dog because Boozer can't do it himself. So when yeah. you said, you know, we don't know what you would do personally, like I don't, I don't think I could mercy kill someone or or an animal because it's like, yeah, you want to, you understand the concept, yeah. but being able to be the one that actually puts in the knife or actually makes someone overdose, I mean, damn, yeah, heavy that's, shit. It is, and and I'm glad that we touched on some of that stuff in the game because you know it's those kind of things you don't think about you know if living in a world like that there's there's gonna have to be decisions that you make that are that are really tough and the the one with the dog man i don't i don't know what i would do mm. you know i i love my dogs i love you know i love animals like but but like that that pain you 
they can't they can't express it except for in you know noises and whimpers and stuff like that but you have no idea what that pain that they're going through is like yeah. and you know that there's also nothing that you can do to to fix it you know you're not you you don't have medicine you're not going to be able to nurse them back to health you know it's it's a situation where there's there's very few options um mm-hmm. and you know it, that's one of those moments where you see deacon and boozer's relationship and they would do anything for each other even yeah. even if it meant Deacon having to do something that he wouldn't feel comfortable with and and probably was really difficult to do, he did it because he knew that it would be that much harder for Boozer to have to do it. And and they're already going through a lot, you know. And so to be able to just for a moment, you know, take take away something that would have caused Boozer even more grief, um mm. to to help him, you know, as his brother. That was is uh, yeah another one of those powerful moments in the game yeah yeah definitely all right i have one last question for you and this is someone i like to ask everyone if you found yourself in the world of days gone how would you fare and what camp would you end up in oh man it's tough to think about because like you know i've i've got a wife and kids and pets and all that kind of stuff and you know i i would hope that we would all be there together um and Lost Lake is obviously the camp that, you know, has their stuff together the most and still has uh, some heart, you know, Um, and heart that's in the right place. You know, I I think Copeland had heart, but, you know, it was, he was a little bit of a whack job and Tucker, Mm -hmm. you know, you do something wrong there, she might have you for dinner. Um, (laughs) And obviously, I I don't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have survived the militia. but you know lost lake i i think would have been home um but you know that's that's always something that we talked about is like there's no kids in this world mm. um you know and so you know what does that situation look like for somebody that has a family that's trying to survive in that world you know and that's when it gets like you know real serious and i'm like oh this is emotional um <laughs> but you know i would do everything in my power to protect my family right. and and make sure that they were safe and that might mean not being part of a camp, you know, it might be, you know, doing what Deacon and Boozer did and, you know, kind of understanding that they have to tap into the camp every once in a while and have to do things for them. And, and, you know, but, you know, the rest of the time they're kind of living alone and on the outskirts and making sure that they're keeping each other safe. And that's very much that, you know, family situation, Deacon and Boozer stuck together um, because they knew that they could trust each other. Uh, and and keep each other safe the family that drifts together survives together. right 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 <laughs> yeah so i'd you know I'd, I'd probably have you know my wife and i would have our you know like matching motorcycles and we'd have little sidecars for the kids and, and the dogs and stuff like that <laughs> um but yeah i mean we'd probably you know find a safe spot outside of town and and you know take turns going out and and getting things that were necessary to keep each other safe um but yeah i knock on wood Hopefully we're never in that situation. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed we never find out how we'd fare in this yeah. world. Now, now, if it was me by myself, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably end up part of one of the camps, uh, probably Lost Lake, and, you know, probably be working in the garage with, with Ricky or something on, on mm-hmm. motorcycles or, or trying to get some trucks running or, or something like that. Um, but uh, probably keep my head down. Yeah. Nose down, they feed you. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Well, Eric, thank you so much for talking with me today. I I really appreciate your time. 
Yeah, absolutely. This was a pleasure. Any anytime I get to talk about the game and and you know talk about what went into it and the passion behind it and, and see the passion from from the community and stuff, it's it's always a treat. A few quick reminders, weekdays at 7.30am Pacific Time, you can watch me live stream my Days Gone playthrough, I take on hordes, talk shit about rippers, lay waste to ambush camps, and all that before I've had my morning cup of coffee. You can find me on my YouTube channel, just search for Days Gone Podcast. And on Tuesdays, I collaborate with Spornicus Rex on his channel. We are wrapping up our Days Gone playthrough today, April 26th but we'll be back with a different game starting next Tuesday at 6pm Pacific. If you want to support the Days Gone podcast, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash daysgonepod. All donations are greatly appreciated, and they really help me with the overhead costs of running the show. A special shout-out this week goes to the incredible Boris Lav 24-7, who not only was my guest on the show in episodes 33 and 34, but he's also an amazingly supportive guy who bought me coffee this week. Thank you, Grandmaster Boris. Also, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share, all that good stuff, so more people can find the show. You can email me your thoughts, comments, opinions, and counter-arguments at daysgonepod at gmail.com. You can also find me moderating the Days Gone subreddit. Thanks for listening. Weaver out. Weaver out.